your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, we've finally come to the climax of this story. It's not the end of the story, but it is definitely the most exciting part of the story. The Israelites are trapped. There's nowhere to go. On one side, they've got the Red Sea blocking their path. And then on the other side, of course, they've got the Egyptian army, the, the world's strongest army coming at them. They're, they're arch enemies, the ones that have enslaved them for like 400 years. And they recognize, okay, if you're an Israelite, put yourself in their shoes. They've got, they know that they have nobody that's really trained as a soldier. They are very much outmanned, and they have the most powerful army in the world coming at them with swords drawn and horses and chariots. I think we would probably do the same thing they did. They complained to Moses and they cried out to God. And if you recall last week, the response that they got from Moses, I think, is extremely, extremely helpful. He says to them, remember, all right, Moses said to his people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Today we're going to get a chance to see how the Lord fights for them and how he still fights for us today. And so let's pray that God would help us to see this. Father, in a season that is so dark and so frustrating, we need your word to remind us of your faithfulness. We need your word to remind us that you have fought for us. Jesus, we thank you. You are our, our warrior king that has already won the battle that we could not win. And I pray that this morning you would help us to better know your power, that you would help us to better trust in your faithfulness, and trust the path that you have put us on today. I pray that you would use your perfect, your holy word to strengthen our faith, to sanctify our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Pick up with me in chapter 14, starting in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egypt, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now let's take a look at how God fights for Israel here. Look back at verses 15 through 18, and if you're taking notes, we're going to put these up on the screen, I believe, yes? And uh, these, are all, these are in your bulletin, your, your virtual bulletin, and so if you want to go there, you can, you can type your answers here. Verses 15 to 18, we see that God prepares his people by telling them what will happen. And so, first I want to point out that in verse 15, when God asks Moses, okay, why do you cry to me? Moses... That's not directed actually at Moses. Okay, that's directed at the Israelites. Moses just happens to be the middleman. He's the mediator between them. And I think Moses understood that. But notice how he answers their cries. He tells them what is about to happen. He prepares them by giving them a hope for the future. Moses is going to raise up his hand. The sea is going to divide. You're going to walk through on dry ground. And I will cause the Egyptians to foolishly follow you. And I will get glory over them. And they will know that I am the Lord. God didn't have to do this. I mean, he could have just kept them worrying. He could have kept them shaking in their, in their boots or, or their sandals at this point, I guess. But instead, what does he do? He graciously informs them what will happen. He doesn't give them all the details, but he gives them enough so that they know that there is a future hope, enough to ease some of their fears. And this is a pattern we actually see throughout the scriptures. We, we see God consistently, when his people are going through trials, he gives them a little hint of what's coming to give them a future hope. You think about like Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, they're in exile, and let's not take that out of context. There, he also says in that chapter, there's gonna be another 70 years before uh, you're, you're out of exile. But he gives them a future hope. We see in the New Testament, Jesus, what does he do with his disciples? Over and over, he tells them what's about to happen, and he encourages them. At the Last Supper, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, I go and I prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to, to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And so Jesus doesn't tell them all the details, but he tells them enough to comfort them. And he ensures them that, look, one day we're going to be reunited. Today, in the situation that we're in, God hasn't given us all the details. But he's given us enough to comfort us in the midst of even our darkest days. And several times in the New Testament, we're told not to be surprised by the trials that we go through. That we ought to expect trials. First Peter is really a whole book written to us teaching us how to live in the margins and how to live in, in Babylon, to, to live through persecution and, and trials. Paul consistently encourages us to find hope in the future, knowing that one day Jesus will return and take away all of our suffering and our pain. And so we've got this book of Revelation, right? And at the end of Revelation, what do we have? We have a final hope, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. We may not know all the details of our story, but we do know the ending of the story. God fights for his people by preparing them and comforting them with a hope for the future. Instead of dwelling this week, and let me encourage you, this week, instead of dwelling on the things that you see in social media and the news, take a step away. We've got to take a step away from this stuff. It's toxic. Dwell on heaven. I mean, pick up in, in um, oh, who's it? Alcorn's book. Um, on heaven, or, or maybe if you're not a reader, I mean, listen to, I can only imagine, okay? But spend some time focusing on heaven rather than on all the bad news that's going on right now. He fights for us by giving us a future hope. Verses 19 and 20, what do we see there? God positions himself between his people and their attackers. I love this. So the, the cloud, right? It was in front of them, guiding them, that, that cloud is not just uh, your average cloud that you see up in the sky, right? This is God manifesting himself. Uh, and we see here the language. Notice the language. He, says, he describes the cloud as the angel of God. This is the same language that we saw back in chapter 3 in the burning bush, where it was the angel of the Lord that was talking out of the, the burning bush. And almost in the same breath, Moses says, it, it was God who is talking, he's very much making it clear and equating the angel of the Lord to God himself. And so that's what we, we see here. And, and this really, this reminds me of a story in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the, some of the Sadducees, or not the Sadducees, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, I, I believe it was, had brought a woman who had been caught in adultery to Jesus. And they are trying to, trap Jesus and test Jesus. And, and they, they bring her before Jesus and say, look, this woman's been caught in adultery in the law of Moses. She 
should be stoned. What, what do you say, Jesus? And so what does Jesus do? He, he doesn't say anything at first. He just kind of bends over and maybe he sits down and he starts writing in the, in the, in the gravel with his finger. Eventually, he, he looks up and he, he says to them, uh, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And of course, then he, he sits back down and starts drawing with his finger in the ground again. He just kind of waits for their response. But he doesn't hear a response from them at all, does he? Instead, one by one, he hears them drop their stones and walk away. And then he turns to the woman and he says, go and sin no more. Well, what was Jesus doing there? He, he was standing between the woman and her destruction and offering mercy and protection from their wrath. What a picture of what Jesus does for us as he stands before us in destruction and offers mercy and willingly absorbs our, the condemnation that we deserve, protecting us. Just like the woman, too. He does that before we ever get our life put together. It's an amazing picture of grace. And so God fights for us by preparing us, by giving us this hope for the future, but also by positioning himself between us and destruction. Third, verses 21 and 22, God provides the path of escape. And here, with dramatic fashion, right? In fact, some people think that this is so impossible that they try to give some kind of scientific explanations to it. But Moses here makes it very clear that this is a miracle that defies the, the laws of nature, right? They're... they're on dry ground. They're, they're not just going like wading through some shallow water to get away from these chariots, right? The, the ground is dry. There is a wall, a tall wall of water on their left and on their right. There's no way that this is just some kind of, it can't be explained scientifically. And also notice Moses stretches out his hand and God provides for them this path, right? Uh, Alex reminded me of this, this this week. This is very much like Jesus, who is very much stretched out for us to provide an escape from destruction. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said, come to me, all who labor and are who heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus was stretched out on the cross to provide a path of escape from the, from the burden of sin, from the burden of trying to earn our salvation, from the burden of death itself that always is weighing us down. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Um, we've been studying Galatians in our missional community, and this past week we came across this passage, and we did a quick survey of all the places that we could find in the New Testament. In fact, in, in Paul's writing, where he talks about, okay, what are we freed from? And so this freedom in Christ is not just this, this freedom to be able to do whatever we want to do. It's way better than that, actually. Uh, and I, I put these in the, in the notes if you're following along, but this is what we found. This is what it means to be free or have freedom in Christ. This is what he frees us from. Galatians 3.13, Jesus frees us from the curse of the law. Romans 5, 12, and 17, Jesus frees us from the curse of Adam. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, Jesus frees us from the spiritual death. Hebrews 2, 14, and 15, Jesus frees us from the fear of death. 
Romans 8, 1, Jesus frees us from condemnation. Romans 6, 17 and, uh, verses 17 and 18, Jesus frees us from the power of sin. Colossians 1, 13, Jesus frees us from the authority of Satan. And then Galatians 4, 5 and 7, Jesus doesn't free, just free us from things, he frees us to inherit everything that Christ has purchased for us. That's a great, I mean, you could just spend all week just meditating on those passages and the freedom that we have in Christ. And so how does God fight for you? He helps prepare you by uh, helping you know your future hope. He positions himself between us and destruction. He provides the path of escape to escape the wrath of God that we deserve. And so we can experience true freedom. Then we see verses 23 through 25. This is where God proclaims his name by confounding the Egyptians. And so God gave the Israelites enough of a head start to get away, to, to get to, to the other side of the Red Sea safely. And so the, the cloud is lifted. The Egyptians see that the Israelites are crossing on dry ground. And because God has hardened their hearts, they foolishly follow them in to the sea. They get halfway through the sea, and suddenly God opens their eyes to see they're in a trap. They panic. They try to escape. The, but God has clogged their, their wheels. There is no escape for them. And now we see God's purposes are fulfilled. The Egyptians actually acknowledge at this point it is the Lord that is fighting for the Israelites and against us. That's been his goal, hasn't it? To, that they would know that he is the Lord. And that the nations would soon hear about this. And when they saw the Israelites, they would fear the Lord. I mean, talking about having a big brother who everybody's scared of. I mean, you, you probably had those certain people when you were back in school you knew not to mess with because you knew that they had an older brother that would whoop you if you messed with them, right? Well, today, as believers, Jesus is our big brother. And, and our... Our enemy is not other people or other nations. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, we, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we see in the New Testament the demons shudder when they see Jesus, right? And we're going to talk more about this next week, but throughout Paul's writings, he describes Jesus as our warrior king who crushes Satan, defeats death. And we look forward to the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And so God fights for us by preparing us and giving us a, a future hope, by positioning himself between us and destruction, by providing the path to escape and proclaiming his name and confounding our enemies. But he doesn't just confound them. We see in verses 26 and 28, God pummels the Egyptians. Not one of them survive the judgment of God. There is nothing that they can do in their own effort to escape his wrath. Revelation makes it clear that there will be a day when the promises of Genesis 3.15 will be finally and fully accomplished and the head of the serpent will be utterly crushed. And there will be no grace. There will be no mercy for Satan. And he will be fully and utterly destroyed. And everything that he has broken, will be restored. Sin and sickness and death will be no more. And we have the multitude, and we will see the multitudes of saints 
and angels in heaven. And they will, we will sing together the Song of Moses. We're gonna, next week we get to see the, the Song of Moses. Revelation 15 echoes this, right? Then I saw another sign in heaven. John is speaking here. And great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Oh, that'll be a glorious day when there is no more wrath. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and the image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea and the glass and the harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and they will worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so how does God fight for us? By preparing us and giving us a future hope, by putting himself between us and destruction, by giving us a path of escape, by protecting us, by confounding and pummeling our enemies. And then verse 29 through 30, we see that not only does God do all of that, but God saves his people. So I can find a P that goes right here. <laughs> but there's a reason I had to keep saves there. there there's only one thing I really want to point out here. Really, what Moses is doing here in verses 29 and 30, he's summarizing what has happened. But that word saves is really significant. And I was reading a book on the names of Jesus this past week. And I was reminded of this. That the, the word here for saves in the Hebrew, it's actually the first time that it's used in the Bible in this verse, attributed to God. Okay, it's actually used one other time in Exodus before this, but it's attributed to Moses, which I think is interesting. But here, it's attributed to God for the very first time in the Bible. Now, later on in the book of Numbers, we will be introduced, if you read through Numbers, you'll be introduced to a man by the name of Hosea, which his name uses the same base for this. It means salvation. Well, Moses would eventually change that guy's name to uh, Joe Hosea, or often it gets shortened to Joshua, which you probably recognize. That's the guy that brought the Israelites into the promised land. Well, Joshua, uh, fast forward to the New Testament, when Mary and Joseph are talking to their son, more than likely they're using their, uh, their native language, Aramaic, and they would call their son Yeshua, or Joshua. Because the word Joshua is salvation and Yahweh put together. Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh our salvation. And so how does God fight for us? Yeah, by preparing us and giving us a, a hope for the future, by positioning himself between us and destruction, by providing a path of escape, by protecting us, by confounding and pummeling our enemies, but also by saving us through Jesus, Yahweh our Savior. Verse 31, God persuades his people to fear and believe. And so look back at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. You see, when our eyes are open to see the salvation of the Lord, it produces in us a reverence and a faith. When we come to realize all that Jesus has gone 
through and all that he did to fight for our salvation, we can't help but be amazed and say like Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? One last story from the Old Testament. So 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. And so let me give you some context of what's going on here. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has come up against Jerusalem, and this is when Hezekiah was king. And so Hezekiah, the king of Israel, he, he brings everybody together, and, and this is all of his commanders, and, and he brings them to the, the square of the gate, and he says to them, Be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them. For there is one greater with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the writer adds, and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Jesus has already won the decisive battle on our behalf. And right now he continues to fight for us as he advocates on our behalf before the Father. So every accusation that Satan throws our way is defeated between, because of Jesus, because Jesus stands between us and destruction. I pray that in our darkest days, we would remember, like Hezekiah, that there is one greater with us than with him. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you help us to believe the future hope that you promise? Would you help us believe and trust in your faithfulness that you position yourself between us and destruction? Would you help us to believe and to, to follow the path that you've put in front of us to escape destruction? Help us to trust the path that you've put us on. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith. That we would recognize that you are for us. And when you are for us, there is no one that can be against us. And I pray that you would persuade our hearts to be in awe of you right now. That you would bolster our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's time to celebrate communion. And it is such a powerful and necessary ordinance for us to come before the Lord and be reminded that he shed his blood for our salvation, that he gave his body for us. And so I would encourage you during this time, be reminded of his grace and his mercy. And just soak it in. Uh, this is also a time, if you need prayer, I'll be in the back. I would encourage you to pray for our, our church family right now. Especially those who are hurting and are scared. 
And I pray that you would uh, I encourage you just to continue to pray for those who need healing right now. After we get a chance to celebrate, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing about how Jesus is better. What a proclamation that is.